you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Our text for today comes from Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 through 12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Ash. All right. Well, welcome uh, to Grace Community again. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, there is an uh, envelope that's in front of you that's an offering envelope. Uh, we don't expect you to put anything in it, but if you are visiting with us, we would like to give you a gift. We do really cool gifts here. So uh, if you would just fill out that information and you can bring it back to the coffee bar at the end of service, uh, we'd love to give you a cool glass coffee mug that I drink coffee out of on the regular. Not the one you're being given. I don't drink coffee out of that one but one that's very similar to it, all right? We, we just share one mug here and pass it around. <laughs> all right, well, I just wanted to say before we hop into the message today, thank you for, to all of those of you who text me or wrote on Facebook, happy birthday. Um, since I was 23, birthdays have not been easy for me because I've thought of myself as an 18-year-old my entire life, and so I'm always like, I think I'm further from that this year than I was the year prior. Uh, but your, uh, your kind words and... Uh, all of, all of those such things are meaningful to me. They really are. All right? So thank you. So today we are continuing a series that we began last week on the Sermon on the Mount. And if you were with us last week, you knew that we started at the end of the Sermon on the Mount to kind of lay out what we were talking about from now all the way through, um, through, East, through Easter. So, uh, and today we are beginning with that part of the Sermon on the Mount that most people understand or at least when they hear it, it sounds familiar, the Beatitudes, called the Beatitudes. But very often, I think, when we look deep, more deeply at the Beatitudes, we don't actually know what, what is being said here. We don't actually understand what is being said, and, what, and at the very least, what Jesus wants from us, right? What, why he's giving this message in this place, and what exactly he, what the desired outcome is from his giving of the Beatitudes. What does he mean and what does he want from us? So, a little context. We need to take a step back to really understand what is happening here at the very beginning on the Sermon on the Mount. If you read Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew 4, Jesus really begins his public ministry. He's kind of shot out of a cannon into public ministry, and he's going all around this part of Israel called Galilee, which was the northern part of Israel. If you see a map, it's right around the Sea of Galilee, which is why it's called Galilee. And he's doing some incredible things. He's preaching, he's going to all the synagogues in Galilee, and he is healing. And in, in Matthew chapter 4, it says that Jesus is healing everyone who comes to him, every infirmity and every illness amongst the people. This is what Jesus has been doing. And he just kind of jumps onto the scene with this powerful ministry, right? And he just starts doing these things and preaching these things, and nobody really knows 
who he is or what he's doing. They just hear whispers of all of this kind of powerful stuff that's going on. Jesus is uh, really creating a stir in the Galilee. And so what happens is crowds begin to follow him, ever larger and larger crowds, because they want to see what he's going to do next. Obviously, if there's a man walking around proclaiming the type of things that Jesus is proclaiming and doing the type of things that Jesus is doing, you would think that a crowd would gather, and this is exactly what happens. And so we see at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5 this phrase, and seeing the crowds... And seeing the crowds, Jesus ascends to the top, or not probably to the top, probably to the side of a large hill or mountain, and did what everyone does when they're around a large crowd of people. He sat down, which is not true, but he sat down to prepare to teach these people. And at this point, at this point when he sits down, the disciples know something serious is going to happen. And so what do the disciples do? They gather close around him, right? They come because they want to hear what it is Jesus is going to say. And Jesus begins this great manifesto, this great sermon we call the Sermon on the Mount. Now, people have been hearing all about this man, about Jesus, and so they gather around him. And right here I want to stop and say one thing. Before we really get into the Beatitudes, you should notice in chapter 5, verse 1, that Jesus is addressing the committed. He is addressing Christian people here, or not Christian people, but disciples of Jesus. But notice that he is also creating space for the crowds, for those who are curious about what might be happening, for those who are interested in the teachings of Jesus, but might not necessarily be called disciples. Jesus is addressing his sermon primarily to his disciples, but he is creating space and accommodating those who might not be his disciples yet, people who are just interested, people who want to know, people who have heard heard whispers of something that's going on and they want to go check it out, right? This is what Jesus, this is partially what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, And I just want to say briefly that I think Jesus' model here is a very helpful one for a church. That as a church, as a community of Christ followers, what we do here on a Sunday is we come and we gather kind of symbolically around the Word of God, around Jesus, you could say. And And we learn from the Scriptures and we attempt to be better disciples, but... But we always want this community, this place, to be a safe spot for those who are, just want to kind of come in here, who just, the, the crowds, if you will, the people who just kind of want to come and see, who are investigating the faith, who are curious about the faith, who, who want to know what, it, what exactly is it that Jesus taught? What is, it that he, what is it that he did? How exactly does this apply to me? These are healthy questions, and we want to create space within the context of our church for those types of people. The reality is, is that everything that we do on a Sunday is geared towards making those of, us, uh, those of us who call ourselves Christ followers better at that. But I hope that everything we do is intelligible to those who might not have a uh, understanding of the scriptures or might not have, have committed to follow Jesus or are just curious about what it, what it is that people do in a building called a church. I think this is a safe and good thing to be and do as a community. And so uh, I think that Jesus' model here on the Sermon on the Mount is also very, very helpful for us. It's a good thing. And if you are here and you're still on that journey, and in some ways all of us are, but I just want you to know that over the next uh, eight, nine weeks, this is a very good series 
you're curious about the teachings of Jesus and about what it means to be one of his followers. This is a very good series to be in on. All right? All right. So, uh, Jesus then begins this, I have, I think my daughter put a lot of hair on me this morning. It was just caught a glimpse. Just a little glimmer in my eye. Um, So, uh, Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount in this way that I think is really, really interesting. Like, he is saying things that I don't know if, when when we read it, if we really understand what he's saying. The, The reality of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus starts out by saying, blessed are. And then he lists a number of things, right? Blessed are the poor, blessed are, the, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the humble, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And you've already heard a bit of this passage from last week. You will not be surprised that there, when we ask this question, what, what does he mean by blessed are, because when we think of the word blessed, we don't necessarily think of the things that Jesus then lists, right? When we think of the word blessed, we don't necessarily think about the poor. We don't necessarily think about those who mourn when we think about those who are blessed. We don't necessarily think about all of those things, but yet Jesus comes on the scene, and in his great manifesto, his great sermon says, these are the people who are blessed. What is he talking about? What exactly is he talking about? You know, last Saturday night, Ashley and I got back late. Uh, We were in Missouri visiting some family and some friends. And I had parked my car in the garage because it was going to be cold. And we drove our other car down to Springfield. And we came back, and it was late. And Ashley was right behind me. And I was trying to pull my Jeep out of the garage. And uh, I turned the wheel too sharp to the right, and I basically pulled off the whole right front end of my, or left front end of my car. I scraped it against the garage and pulled the whole front end off, which is why we're kind of a one-car family right now. And uh, you know what my response was to that? I just walked around the side of my car, and I looked at the dilapidated front end of this Jeep that is dilapidated to begin with, and said, blessed. (laughs) Blessed. Blessed. This is not what I did, actually. I actually turned around and chucked my keys down the driveway and then walked around in negative five degrees for about 10 minutes until I composed myself enough that I could come back inside and actually put my children to bed. This is what I did. Uh, we don't naturally think of the situations that Jesus is talking about in this passage as being blessed situations, right? This isn't what comes to mind right? It's not how we think about what a blessing is. And yet, Jesus comes on the scene, and he says that these people and these situations are blessed. Now, what we kind of have to understand here is that what Jesus is saying is not just that being, just the, the status of being poor is blessed, or, the, or the, the status of being one who mourns is a blessed position, What he is saying is that, and what he is announcing, and what he has been announcing as he walks all throughout the Galilee, is that these situations are blessed, not because they are in and of themselves good positions to be in, but because the deliverance of God, the kingdom of God is coming. It's actually here in the the presence of Jesus, and Jesus has announced that when the kingdom of God starts, 
to expand, when it starts to come on the scene, where it is going to begin, where it's going to start, is with the poor and with those who mourn and with those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is where it will begin. And we know this beyond a shadow of a doubt because Jesus is not actually, um, what he's saying in, the, in Matthew 5 is not original to him. He's actually quoting the prophet Isaiah here, specifically in Isaiah chapter 61. You see, the Hebrew people had this belief in that, that when God finally established his rule and his reign, when he put everything right, there would be some hallmarks, some things that would happen, that it would look a certain way, that God's deliverance of his people would look a very specific and certain way. And they tied a lot of those hopes, a lot of those um, a lot of those desires into this prophetic, uh, this real, this prophetic statement that the prophet Isaiah gives in Isaiah 51. If you remember uh, in Luke's gospel, Luke actually has a story where Jesus stands up in, in church, in the synagogue, and reads Isaiah 61, and then says, in your hearing, this has been fulfilled, and then goes and sits down again, <laughs> right? That there was this expectation in, within the Jewish community at this time, that when God showed up, it would look a certain way. And this is what they said it would look like in Isaiah 51. And I'm just going to read it, and you can hear the similarities. So this is what it says, beginning in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all those who mourn, and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will build the ancient ruins, rebuild the ancient ruins, and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers uh, will shepherd their flocks. Foreigners will work their, their fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of the nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion of your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I am faith, uh, in my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring amongst the people. All, the, all who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. This was the belief that the Jew, Jewish people had, that when the, when the Messiah came, when the Anointed One came, when the one who was going to establish the rule and the reign of God came on the scene, this is what would happen. This is what God would do. And when we read about the, the kingdom of God that Jesus is, says is now being established in your very hearing, the first thing he says about that, the very first thing he pronounces when he gives his grand manifesto about what his, this kingdom is all about and what his ministry and life are all about and what the kingdom of God is all about, he essentially quotes Isaiah 61. 
And he says, this thing that you thought would happen is happening, and it's happening now in me, through me, because of my presence with you. Now, this is really important. This is really important, isn't it? That, it? that it become a proclamation of what God is doing in His grace. That it's a proclamation of when God shows up, this is the type of things that happen. Because very often what we do with the Beatitudes is we make them a be like this list. Not a Beatitude, but a be like this list. I like hyphens a lot. And there, and there are, there, to be honest with you, there's quite a bit of confusion in Christian history about how we are to, uh, how we are to handle the Beatitudes. Very often in Christian history, people believe that in, order to, that in order to follow Jesus well, what we have to do is make ourselves like the Beatitudes. So, so we have to put ourselves in a position of poverty or of mournfulness in order to be blessed by God. Does this make sense? Because if it's just a be about be like this list, it's just a means of acquiring righteousness from God. God says, these are the types of things you need to be, and then you need to go be them, right? This is hard work. Yet this is not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that this is a be like this list. What Jesus is actually saying is that the Beatitudes are a pronouncement of the grace of God that has come and will come in fullness. That, that has begun in the person of Jesus and is continuing to come as, one, his followers participate with him in the ushering in of this kingdom, and as God works out his plan of building the kingdom in the earth. This is what Jesus is pronouncing. This is what he's saying. This is, the, Be, the Beatitudes are not another list that you need to follow in order to measure up. The Beatitudes are not... Uh, a, uh, a way for you to feel self-righteous about yourself as we like kind of uh, give ourselves over to poverty or to, or to mournfulness or to righteousness. And then it's all just like a self-righteousness that I've earned and now I'm in and other people are out because they're not like me, right? This is not what Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes. What he is actually saying here is that the poor and the oppressed, those who mourn and thirst for righteousness, are, are blessed. And another word for blessed, another way you can interpret that word is happy, because God is now, in the person of Jesus, acting on those people's behalf. He's acting on their behalf. Beatitudes do not promise a kind of distant well-being for those who do the right things. The Beatitudes congratulate disciples because God is already acting to deliver them. And in the Beatitudes, we are invited to participate in what God is already doing. So in the Beatitudes, we are not called to these standards in order to be blessed by God, but we are called to participate. We are invited even to participate in what it is God is already doing, what God's plan that is unfolding. Jesus is saying that we are blessed because we are expecting God's reign in our midst and will experience it yet more in the future. This is why we are blessed. It's like Jesus puts his foot in the ground and says, God is delivering, his kingdom is being established, and this is what it looks like. Hop on board. This is what the Beatitudes are. 
So real quick, what I want to do this morning is just talk about three of these Beatitudes, not because these are the only three that are important, but because we don't have a lot of time. And so to really dive into the Beatitudes, you need a little bit more time than this, and I wish I would have made this two sermons, to be honest with you, when I got done studying this week. Uh, But for the sake of today, uh, let's just look at three of the ones that I think we get most uh, confused about some of the ones that there are the most misunderstanding about so that we can get to the heart of what it was that Jesus is saying so that we can learn to participate with him well. Does this make sense? All right. So the first I want to talk about is blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor. Uh, Luke also uh, quotes this very same passage. But when Luke says it, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Is anybody familiar with this? There's two different translations of this exact story, and when Luke says it, he says that Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, and, but when Matthew says it, he says, blessed are the poor. So which is it? Is it, the, is it, is it are the poor in spirit blessed, or is it the poor who are blessed? Because that is important, right? It's a very, it's a very important distinction, because if it's just the poor in spirit, then forget about the poor, right? We don't really have to worry about the actual poor. But if, it's the, but if it is the poor and not the poor in spirit, then, oh, all of those of, those of us who are poor in spirit, we don't have to, it's, it's not about us, right? It's an important distinction, and I, think, and I think very often we get it confused. But the reality of it is that the, the Hebrew word that's being translated here, and it is a Hebrew word that's being translated because, remember, Jesus is quoting, uh, he's quoting Isaiah 61. So when he thinks about poor, he's thinking about the same idea that is communicated in the prophet Isaiah, that word me has a double meaning. It means both poor in spirit and uh, economically poor. It means both things. So one, one author interprets it one way and the other author interprets it another way. That to be poor in spirit and to be poor or to be devoid of wealth, actually, is a state that Jesus wants to address, that he actually wants to address. And what's important to remember here is that the God of the Bible is always talking about the poor, particularly the poor in the Old Testament. And one thing you'll realize if you read through the Bible a lot is that the poor, those who are both poor in spirit and poor um, financially, in the Bible are people who are closer to God than people who have wealth and money or who are, or who are rich in other ways. This is, this is a constant theme of the scriptures, that God's heart, in some real and true sense, doesn't go first to those who are wealthy or those who are doing great. The, the heart of God begins with the poor. That the deliverance of God doesn't begin, though all of us are in need of deliverance, right? The, the deliverance of God doesn't begin at the top. It begins at the bottom, and God's heart is specifically there. Now, that's a controversial thing to say isn't it? That, that when God begins his work of deliverance, what the, people, the, the place it starts is with the poor, that there is an order of this thing, and God sets an order of priority for his own heart, right? That's a, that's a slightly controversial thing to say, but I don't know how to look at this passage and not say that that's the case, to be honest with you. I don't know how if we look honestly at the things that God says throughout the text and in the Old Testament and the whole corpus of Scripture, how we can't draw that conclusion. And so what that means for us is that to gain a heart like God's, what we have to do and what we have to understand is to look at this passage and and see that if 
our hearts are in some ways callous towards the, the numeric, to the, those who are, I don't know, what would you call them? Uh, poor is a mean word. If you, the under-resourced, right? If, if we, we look at those who are uh, challenged in their resources, and there isn't some movement in us of, of grace or care, then in some sense we, have to check, we do have to check our hearts here and say, is, is my heart a heart that looks like God's? Does this make sense? Because very often what the, what the prophets criticize, specifically in the Old Testament, and if you read the book of Amos, you'll see this very clearly, that it's those who have resource and oppress the poor that God is judging, and it's, and it's the poor who are being oppressed by those with resource that God is most actively in the process of delivering. And Jesus is announcing that now, when the king, kingdom of God comes, that that is going to be, begin happening in some really intense ways. And, and Jesus wants his disciples to be a part of it to be a part of it. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the poor, he is literally talking not just about our spirits, but about the, the literal poor, that when the kingdom of God arrives, the systems and the processes and the sin and all of the things that, that, that conspire together to create poverty in our world will be laid asunder. All of those things will be put aside. And Christians are people, followers of Jesus are people who understand this, who attempt to get a heart like God and want to participate with him in that process. Does that make sense? So blessed are the poor is number one. I want, and the second beatitude, the beatitude right after blessed are the poor is the second one I want to talk about today. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This word that is translated here, mourning, is again like uh, the word poverty that we hear translated. It has a double meaning, actually. It means uh, mourning. Uh, this word mourning means uh, a mourning over something that, uh, over a loss, whether that be the loss of a loved one or the loss of something that you care about very deeply. But the other connotation of this, of this word, and the one that I think uh, I want to center on here this morning, I find very interesting. It's not just grief over uh, the loss of a loved one or the loss of something you care about very deeply. It is also the type of grief or the mourning that is produced because of repentance. This word means more than just uh, mourning over the loss of a loved one. It also means mourning over one's own sin or mourning over the brokenness that one sees in the world. And this is, I think, really, really important. Really, really important for us to grasp here today that God is not just interested, not just interested in comforting us when we lose, when we lose someone. He is, and he's ever present with us, and there's, there's this comfort in that. But God is also interested, or he is also interested in delivering or comforting those who see their sin for what it is and are distressed by that reality. We see what we have done. We see uh, the pain that we've caused both ourselves and the, those around us, and we, we see our sin, and we are distressed by it. You see, when, when any of us truly see our sin, when we truly see the ways in which we have fallen short, when we truly see the brokenness of the, in the, of the world around us, it should move us to a kind of godly sorrow a kind of godly sorrow, 
a kind of repentance that comes about when you mourn the brokenness that you see both in yourselves and in the world. And part of the reason I think in our culture that we don't see this is we believe that sin is isolated. That when I do something wrong, that it's about me, right? So I did this bad thing off in the corner, and it doesn't affect anybody else, right? So I get the power of self-determination, and I get to do whatever I want to do, right? Whether it's, whether it's seen as good in the eyes of society or, or good in the eyes of the Christian faith or bad in the eyes of the Christian faith. It doesn't really matter because it's not hurting anyone. But if you really see sin for what it is, what, what sin primarily is is an offense against another, Nothing that I do with my own body affects just me, right? There, there's all kinds of cycles of sin and brokenness that affect all kinds of people in my world, right? Do you think that the, do you think that the United States had uh, the economy collapsed in 2008 because, uh, because everybody's sin was isolated? No. This was people's sin brought into their workplace that they, uh, and then it affected everyone, right? This is what happened. This is why bad things happen in the world, because we have people's sin. Very often that sin is conglomerated into a group of people, and then it affects other people, right? And this is why the proper response in the Bible to sin is not, ah, that was just a thing I did. Let's move on, right? The proper response to my own sin and my own brokenness in the world is mourning, it is sadness. It is godly sorrow. And you're saying, Nick, this is not, this is not what I'm told, right? I'm told that I don't, need to, I don't need to be sad about the bad things I do because Jesus has covered my sin, and that is very true. And the promise, for, uh, the promise that Jesus holds out here is that those who mourn will be comforted. And why will they be comforted? Because they've been forgiven. Because God, when God's kingdom arrives, forgiveness comes and condemnation is cast aside. But that does not mean that we aren't to look at the things in our own life and in the life of the world. See those things and understand them for what they are and mourn over them, to feel the weight of them. Because so often, so many of us have so many blind spots in our life, right? I do, you do. We all have these horrible blind spots, and what we need from God is to kind of bring those to the surface, to show us the places in our lives where when I say those things and do those things, I hurt the people around me, and I need to feel the weight of that in order to repent in any way that is uh, meaningful for my own soul. Does this make sense? And so what God wants from us is godly sorrow that leads to comfort, that leads to comfort. It does not lead uh, to condemnation. It does not lead to a life where I'm just constantly in this cycle of guilt. But it does lead, but, but he does want us to look accurately at the substance of our lives and to see the ways in which other people's sin has affected us and our sin has affected other people, to see the ways in which we operate in systems of sin in this world that keep people oppressed and maybe at times opt out of those systems. Does this make sense? It's important that we understand that mourning, is, mourning in the biblical sense here is an important component of what it means to be repentant. It's an important component of what it means to be uh, a citizen of the kingdom of God. And to be honest with you, I think what the world needs a lot more of is honest, uh, an honest look at our own sin. 
is an honest look at the ways in which we have hurt people. And if we can do that and we, we can see it for what it is, but not carry it because we know that we've been forgiven, right? We can move forward in our lives in a way that doesn't repeat those cycles, but rather uh, leans more towards justice, peace, goodness, grace, love. Does this make sense? And so that's what I think we're called to do, to actually, to actually see our sin for what it is, to actually mourn over it, and then to uh, participate with the kingdom of God. Uh, another way of putting this beatitude, if you were just to rewrite it, I, and with the, with the meaning of this word mourning um, made a little bit more clear, would be to say, blessed are those who mourn what is wrong and unjust and sincerely repent, for God comforts those who suffer and those who repent. Does that make sense? Because God suffers, because God comforts those who suffer and those who repent. And this morning, I think we're all invited to do that. We're always invited to do that, but we're all invited to do that. So that's the second one. Uh, number three that I want to talk about this morning is blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. This word means those who bring about peace. It's a really complicated one. It doesn't have a double meaning. It literally means those who work for peace. That those who work for peace are blessed. Now, this uh, leads us to believe, right, that working for peace is something that God uh, looks at and wants to participate with as well. That those who work for peace... Uh, are on the side of a God of peace, right? Have you ever been in a, in, uh, now I'm asking this rhetorically, but, but I know it's all of us. Have you ever been in a situation where you knew you were distrived for peace in some interpersonal relationship, but the only thing you wanted to do was key that person's car, right? The only person you wanted to do was like drive by their house. This is Okay, so you're seeing the, the inner darkness that lies within me. The only thing you wanted to do was like drive by their house at like 325 in the morning and spray paint liar on their garage in red spray paint. This is, this is what you wanted to do, right? The, the inner impulse of your heart was not necessarily to move towards peace, right? And it wasn't the, wasn't the impulse of your heart all the time, and it's not always the impulse of any of our hearts, but there's also an impulse that I think uh, we can feed, and that is this impulse to work for peace both in our interpersonal relationships and on a, on a community scale, right? And if I'm being honest, one of the things that our world solely lacks is peace. This is why Jesus says when the kingdom of God arrives, that the, one, of the, one of the hallmarks of that kingdom will be peace because if God needs to come and bring it, there is an absence of it in the earth. Does this make sense? There's an absence of it here if God needs to come and bring it. And all you have to do, right, is watch the news and see all the wars or, go, or take a history class and see all of the strife or uh, go down anywhere and see all of the ways in which people are not striving for peace but are rather striving for either their own interests, right? Or they're striving for divisiveness or they're striving for partisanism or they're striving for all of these things. And Christians are people following the teachings of Jesus who participate with God in his work of bringing about peace. Does this make sense? So, this is, the, this is one of the areas where I think we can get the be like this list kind of confused. That in order to be a Christian, 
I need to be a person of peace. And so I go about my day working as hard as I can to be a person of peace. And there's some truth to that, right? We want to participate with God. But the reality of the beatitude is that God, uh, in the person of Jesus, announces that peace is the through-going nature of the kingdom of God. And God wants to help us, as he proclaims peace in the world, be a people of peace. He does not want there to be that strife within your family that you feel every time you go to Thanksgiving. He does not want and wants to bring peace into that situation with that coworker who always chews their gum so loud that you, you, you want to throw a stapler at them, right? Like, the, these are little. Uh, I, chew, I, I, drink, I drink Coke too loud, and Ashley can't stand it, and I just say to her, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Um, uh, the reality of the Christian faith is that Christians are people who need to participate with God in bringing peace to our own hearts, peace between God and ourselves, peace between ourselves and other people, and peace in a broader sense in the world. And so, this is why it worries me when people who claim to follow Christ are the first to um, maybe argue for a lawsuit, are the first right? I'm not saying every situation in which there is a lawsuit, if you're participating in it, you're not a Christian. I'm saying when it's the first impulse of your heart, right? This is why it bothers me when politicians who claim to be Christians, the first impulse that they lay on the table is war, right? And we can have some conversations about those types of things, but it should not be the first impulse of our heart. Does this make sense? We should be following Jesus in in the cause of peace, right? We should be following Jesus in the way of peace, And now the world is a vastly complicated place, and we need to have a lot of conversations about some of the ways that that works out. But the the principle still holds true, doesn't it? The Christians ought to be people who cultivate peace to the best of their ability in their heart and live in the flow of God's kingdom, right? I think we can all agree on that. All right, I'm going to move on because I was going to get, that could get messy. So we'll just move on. So in conclusion this morning, I just want to draw two uh, basic uh, conclusions from this set of beatitudes. And the first, and I mentioned it briefly with the poor, that God's revolution begins at the bottom and works its way up. God's revolution begins at the bottom and works its way up. And the places where you will see the kingdom breaking out and the places where you see the kingdom breaking out most profoundly in the scriptures are not the places you think, are they? Jesus will go around Galilee healing the poor and the oppressed. He will go around proclaiming deliverance. He will go around doing miracles. And almost none of these miracles that he does, almost none of the healings that he does are for people of power. If you read them, they're not. He he heals the centurion's daughter. Maybe that's an example of something a little different, but the centurion's not even a Jewish person, right? Primarily, Jesus' ministry happens on the outskirts of Israel, in, in, in Galilee that was considered just like a kind of a poor area. And God's revolution began there. It began at the bottom and worked its way up. And so uh, that's not to say that God's revolution doesn't also break into places of power, because it does. But it is to say that we need to identify the nature of the outbreaking of the kingdom of God, that it begins at the bottom. And that those who identify with the kingdom of God identify with those who are at the bottom as well. Because that's God's heart. That's his mission. So that's number one. 
Number two, a church fully alive is not a church that simply acknowledges God's grace for us, but participates with it. So we said last week that uh, God, that Jesus' pronouncement, the message of the Sermon on the Mount is grace because Jesus comes on the scene and he just announces that the kingdom of God is on the move, right? And that this is a gracious thing to say, right? But we are not called, like we said last week, to simply be consumers of that merit, but rather we are called to be participants with it. And if you're... uh, and really, if you're wondering what the shape of the kingdom of God looks like, what, what shape it will take in the world, it looks like the mournful being uh, comforted, the humble inheriting the earth, those who are hungry being sated, those who strive for peace, discovering that they were laboring on the side of God the whole time. When the kingdom of God breaks out, mercy will be given to all those who need it, and faithfulness and diligence in the face of struggle will ultimately be rewarded with full citizenship in the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom of God looks like, and we are called not to be all of those things so that we earn God's favor, but to participate in that kingdom, to be a part of what God is doing in the world, because those things are good and beautiful and lovely and lead to our flourishing. We are called to participate with the things that are happening in the kingdom because God is calling us to do those things. And the reason we identify with and work in tandem with the things that Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes is because as we participate with what God is already doing, as we become uh, God's hands and feet, as it were, in the building of the kingdom in, in our world, what, we're, what we actually find out is that all of those things that we longed for and hoped in some real and true sense come true because because we are participating with the kingdom of God. Last week, I was reminded uh, by Rich Smiley, actually. Uh, yeah, I know, you're getting called out in the sermon, Rich. Uh, that uh, Last week, we were talking about the fact that uh, good thi- bad things don't, Christians aren't exempt from having bad things happen to them, right? Do you remember that? And that bad things very often do happen, and that Sometimes we will end up poor because something will happen and with uh, no control of our own or something along those lines. Or in the case of several people in this room right now, a storm might come and take your house away. And Rich came up to me and he said, uh, you know, the the thing about embracing the storm is that uh, if you have a storm, it's also important to have people around you who will look at you and say, this is great because we can build a new house and it's going to be even better than the last one. And, and I was reminded of the fact that, yes, the reason that's a beautiful story and the reason that uh, good can come out of uh, these bad things is because people who catch a glimpse of what the kingdom of God looks like in community partner together to be the hands and feet of the kingdom out into the world, right? This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like when a, when a church bands together. This is what it looks like when... Um, when uh, people who are in bad situations are cared for and provided for within the context of the community of Christ followers. It means a community coming together and extending the kingdom of God to one another. Does this make sense? And what a, a, a church fully alive, a church that is fully alive, doesn't simply sit back and acknowledge God's grace for all of us and then go back to our houses and be by ourselves. 
a church that, that acknowledges the grace and the goodness of God that is proclaimed by Jesus in the Beatitudes and on the Sermon on the Mount is a church that participates together to see that kingdom come in our midst, right? And it is as simple. It absolutely is as simple as helping somebody rebuild their house. It is absolutely as simple as being a shoulder to cry on when somebody's experienced a bad situation. It is absolutely as simple as telling somebody the truth about what they did to you and then extending forgiveness to them. It is absolutely that simple, but it is in those simple and seemingly insignificant situations. It is in the giving of grace and the seeking of peace and the, and the humble and mournful posture of one who knows that they've sinned, not just against themselves, but against their brother or sister. It is in those simple expressions of the kingdom of God that the kingdom of God does come more fully. And don't you dare think that you're doing that all on your own. Because if I read the scriptures right, you and I aren't capable of doing that. But it is the Spirit of God and the person of Jesus residing in us and carrying us along in the river of the kingdom of God that is coming into our world. This is what it means to be a Christian. And this is what it means to see the Sermon on the Mount take up root in our lives and carry us to a new place. This is what it means. This is what it looks like. This is what it is. And when we as a church, as a community of, of friends and of followers of Jesus, uh, take this seriously. We extend the kingdom of God out into our community by simply being ambassadors of it to one another. This is what it means to participate and be a church fully alive with the kingdom that Jesus pronounced and is continuing to bring in our very midst. Let's pray. Father, we want to be that type of community, that type of community that extends the kingdom of God to one, of, to one another, that participates with what God is already doing in the world. Would you help us to be a church, to be a people who don't just uh, attempt to be poor so that we can get blessed by God, but attempt to bless the poor so that we can participate with you. Help us to be a people who aren't just... Uh, uh, wanting God to save us from our mournful situation, but rather want to see our sin and mourn over it, that we might participate in a community that is uh, more grace-filled. God, would you make us a church that of people who actively seek peace, not so that we can get from God, not because God won't accept us if we're occasionally mean to somebody that we don't like, but rather so that we can step into a kingdom that we know is coming, that is going to bring peace, and we want to participate with that kingdom. Father, would you help us all to see in all of the myriad of little and insignificant ways, the ways that we are broken, and the ways that you are coming to deliver us. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Go today in the grace and in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ.